Welcome to the Medical Sales Certification Podcast. This is Colby Wood, and uh, I wanted to do a little brief kind of housekeeping and update on this podcast. This, uh, I've got the pleasure of having Dr. Lucas Beekler on this podcast with me today as a guest. Um, as full disclosure, we recorded this podcast actually a number of months ago back in 2019, and uh, for a number of reasons, one of them being just me being busy and, you know, making up excuses for not getting it done. Uh, anyway, um, I'm now getting this out to you. Uh, and so I hope that you enjoy it. Uh, it was recorded a number of months ago, but I think that, um, it will still be useful and relevant. And, uh, I wanted to give you a quick background on Dr. Beekler to, um, kind of get this started just so that I don't waste, I try to not waste as much time as I can with our, uh, or the surgeons that are willing to give me their time going over this background. Cause I can always, do it on the back end uh, and insert it here at the beginning like I'm doing right now. So Dr. Beekler is a, an assistant professor at Northwestern Medicine uh, University here in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, he recently graduated, well graduated, he recently completed his fellowship at the uh, University of Colorado and the Stedman Hawkins Clinic. And he is a uh, sports medicine, fellowship trained sports medicine surgeon focusing on uh, shoulder and elbow primarily. And as you'll see, we get into a number of things in this podcast, so I hope that you enjoy it. Uh, again, thank you to Dr. Buechler for making the time to come on the podcast, and for all of you that are listening, you can check out uh, any of the things that we discuss in here. We're going to have in the show notes as far as how to get in touch with Dr. Buechler and his staff, and uh, also he has recently started um, really his own social media profile, so uh, I'll have those in the show notes, so please uh, like this podcast and uh, follow Dr. Beekler on social media because obviously uh, the more that the more value that I can bring to the surgeons, the more likely I can have or the more likely I am to be able to get them to come on and do this podcast. So please follow him online. And uh, without any further ado, here is the podcast. First of all, thank you for joining me on the podcast today, Dr. Beekler. Uh, very excited to have you here. Thanks for taking the time out of your schedule and everyone listening. Uh, this should be kind of a fun and interesting conversation. Dr. Beekler, you, what's maybe more so interesting about you is where you're at in your career, you know, because you recently started uh, September 3rd. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, so, yeah, you, so I'm fresh out. Yeah, so you just started your practice, um, which we're going to get into. But, you know, where I like to start with most guys is – before we dig into a little bit of your background, what practice looks like now, um, learn a little bit about what makes you tick as a person. You know, what is it that motivates you to do what you do, i.e. being a, you know, sports medicine orthopedic surgeon here at Northwestern? Sure. Yeah, that's actually, so it's, that's the favorite question of our chairman, Dr. Peabody. That's oh, his really? favorite question to people. And so I think about it a lot because he and I do a lot of work together. And even when I was a resident here, We've worked together on a lot of things, and so I hear him ask that to folks all the time. And so I've started to think about it myself. And you know, it's a really hard thing to pin down, but I think when it, when it comes down to it, it's really people and relationships. Yeah. That's what makes me tick. And so, you know, I really enjoy meeting new people, interacting with people, starting projects together, working together, and whether that be clinically, academically, socially. Um, you know, I just really enjoy meeting people, mm -hmm. developing relationships, and kind of nurturing those relationships, and whether they turn into business relationships or lifelong friendships or patient-physician interaction. Yeah. Um, I think that's what makes me tick on a daily basis. You know, that's what gets me through clinic is that 
you know, it's a long day, but it's kind of fun to meet people at different interesting points of their life. There's something interesting about pretty much everybody that walks in the door. And I think that's yeah. what makes medicine fun. Interesting. Do you feel like you've always been that way? Or is that something that like maybe you had life experiences early on, your parents, you know, put you in something or did something like that? Or do you feel like you just naturally have that DNA that you're a people person, you like to interact, you like the variety of people you're going to be seeing on a daily basis? What are your thoughts? I think a little bit of both. And so I think I've always been a people person. Um, you ask my friends I grew up with, I've always been a chatty kid, I've like yeah. talked about anybody. I think like that. Like podcast. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I think that as I've grown up and probably starting towards the end of college and into med school, I learned a little bit more about how to purposely nurture relationships and not just for personal gain or network. Um, but I, I started to learn from friends and others that if you just engage with folks, there's really something interesting about almost anybody. Yeah. And if you can learn how to pull it out of them, you'll be blown away by whether it's background or interest or, you know, just any unique thing. And so I've learned, I think, over the probably the last 10 or 15 years of how to more purposefully engage with people, uh, yeah. which is, I think, is a lot of fun. You know, and we, just due to time constraints, we may not get into this, but what I would be interested to find out, and we don't have to go down this road right now, is a lot of times from the outside of medicine, it's like, well, I got this injury and I go see a doctor and he's going to fix my injury. But you know, my assumption, and I'm not, obviously, I don't see, I'm not a clinician, I don't see patients, but the ability that you and your peers as surgeons have of being able to make that connection with a patient to give them confidence in not only trusting you as a person, as a doctor, as their uh, mentor along whatever you know health issues that they have, how that plays into the m more of a macro, uh, you know, potentially even outcome level, um, you know, because there's and I don't know the data off the top of my head, but there's you know real real data that shows you know the more that the patient buys into what treatment they're getting, the more that they believe in the person who they're getting the advice from, the better outcome they're going to have. Do you feel, I guess, how does that even sound to you? Is that like, is that like weird? Like, I think it's, real? I think it's not only true, I think it's everything. Really? One of the yeah. earliest pieces of advice I got was from a family medicine doctor that said, if you can just engage with patients and listen, they will tell you everything you need to know. Yeah. So in medical school, you're taught what are the right questions to ask and what's the right information to look for. The reality is that if you can develop a relationship with people, they'll give you the information. Yeah. They'll let you know everything that you need to know. You just need to find a way to engage with them and help them trust you so that they will provide all that. Right. And so right. you know, I think we spend a lot of effort on developing that relationship. And it's different for surgical subspecialists. Unfortunately or fortunately, you know, my interaction with patients is normally short-lived, or at least it should yeah. be. You know, I don't have the lifelong relationship that uh, maybe a family medicine or internal mm -hmm. medicine doctor may have. But if we can make the short time meaningful, it turns into a long-term interaction because their friends will come in to see you, yeah. their kids will come in to see you, they may be coming back with a different problem. Hopefully you've been able to get them through that first thing, but if they trust you, then they're more likely to engage. One, so one, they're gonna get you the information you need to make the right decisions or help them make the right decisions. And two, they're gonna be bought into the care. I think the yeah, perfect example, yeah. and I can't quote numbers offhand, sure. but there's tons of quality data with physical therapy. 
the number yeah, one predictor right. of if someone will get better with physical therapy is if they believe they will. And that's yeah, what's so yeah, remarkable. Right. <laughs> as long as they buy into it and believe it, it's a remarkably effective treatment. For mm-hmm. folks who don't buy into it, the question is, should you even send them? Because if they don't buy into it, it's probably a waste of their time and yours. Right. Now, right. you start, start getting into the conversation of, does that mean you should be operating on them? I mean, that's a little bit of a different story. But, yeah, it's mm-hmm. totally true. And I, and I tell family members and friends all the time, they say, well, who's the best person to go to? And the best person to go to is someone that you like and trust. Yeah. and who's good at what they do. You want to find someone good, but then what's important is that you like them and trust them and you have a good relationship with them. I think there's a lot of really good doctors yeah. who don't mesh with a certain patient for whatever reason. Yeah. doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the patient or that they're not a good doctor, but if you don't have that relationship, yeah. it's hard to provide the best care. And so patients will tend, you know, if they don't have that interaction, they'll tend to find someone who they do trust and like, and they'll transition their care there. And that's not only okay, that's what should happen. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, we'll leave that conversation for, for off-air, separate one. But it, it's kind of along that topic. Nonetheless, um, that is an inter- interesting way to start. I do want to dig a little bit into your background uh, before we go too far in the weeds there. Uh, where did you uh, grow up? I think it was in Indiana, Northwest Indiana. Yeah, so I grew up in Northwest Indiana. I was born and raised in Dyer. Parents okay. still live in the same house in Dyer. Went to Lake Central High School, so. Very nice. Yeah, it was all Northwest Indiana through and through. Yeah, yeah. And then you ended up at DePaul for your undergraduate school. How did you end up there? Uh, It's the standard DePaul admissions story, unfortunately. But I thought I wanted, I went to a very big high school. My high school had 3,000 kids in it. And growing up, I went to a small Catholic school. So my graduating class in eighth grade had 27 kids in it. Oh, wow. My graduating high school class had almost 600. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. so, you know, it was a big difference. I thought I wanted to go to a big school. DePaul was one of a, only a handful of small schools that I looked at. Okay. I got a general, I wasn't heavily recruited. I got like a general letter from the baseball coach okay. inviting me to a day on campus. Went down, it happened to be the perfect day of sunny, beautiful, green grass, red brick yeah. and limestone. Fell in love with it. Everybody I met was great. And so I said, we'll do it. That's awesome. And it was one of the, I mean, we get into some of the details later, but it's one of the best decisions I've ever made. I mean, my wife went to DePauw. Both yeah. my sisters ended up going to DePauw. It's a significant oh, wow. part of our of our family now, and it's something that's near and dear to me. So I'm yeah. now engaged on the alumni side with mentoring and helping pre-medical students kind of get through the process yeah. and helping DePauw develop more robust pre-medical mentoring programs okay. so it's a it's a place that's turned out to be really important to me and I was I was very very close to going to Miami of Ohio I love yeah. Miami of Ohio got it got it well good for you that's awesome yeah uh, at what point did you know you wanted to be in medicine whether that's an orthopedic surgeon or something like that maybe that was a decision that happened farther down the line obviously you go to undergraduate school did you, did you know you wanted to go that route maybe even before then or was that something you found in college and you you, you, know, you were able to I don't know triangulate yourself in that direction. When did that occur for you, when you really realized you wanted to be in medicine? Yeah, so the transition probably occurred around the beginning of college or the end of high school. Okay. So I was always a math and science type student. I I really liked the arts and English, um, but I was always much better at math and science. And when I was transitioning from high school to college, I thought I probably wanted to do something in engineering. I ended okay. up at a liberal arts school because I wasn't 100% sure that was the route I was going. And then at that transition from high school to college is when I started to realize what medicine and what orthopedics really was. Mm-hmm. And so I, mm-hmm. I wasn't a kid that grew up saying I wanted to be a doctor. You yeah. know, I yeah. thought I was going to be an electrical or structural mm-hmm. engineer of some <clears throat> sort. And 
I think what happened is I was exposed to orthopedic and orthopedic injuries, not so much, I mean, a little bit through myself, but more through friends and family. And I started to realize that orthopedics is really applied biomechanics. And yeah. so yeah. I kind of realized that there's a part of medicine that lines up with my interests. Yeah. And so I always tell folks this is that orthopedics is what got me interested in medicine in the, from, the, from the start. So from the get-go, it was orthopedics, not so much medicine. I learned yeah. later when I was in medical school and in training and beyond, there's a lot of medicine that I really like. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of other areas I probably, maybe maybe not as happy as I am being an orthopedic surgeon, but sure. a lot of areas, other areas that I find interesting and engaging as well. Yeah, yeah, cool. And so then you uh, went to Indiana for med school. How did you end up there? How did you choose Indiana? Uh, obviously, home state. Um, maybe yeah. sticking with that theme. <laughs> well, no, so it's home state and it's where I got in. It's the, yeah. I mean, that's the long story. I interviewed at a number of places. Um, I liked IU, got in there, yeah. got waitlisted at a few others, but I wasn't like a doorbuster type applicant. I had good test scores and good grades, but it came from, uh, this, a liberal arts background. I didn't mm-hmm, have the specific mm-hmm. science training a lot of the other folks and right. didn't have a strong research background or anything like that. And so IU was where I got in and it lined up. I mean, it worked out, you know, really, really well. And for a number of reasons, I, the other places I was looking were on the beach and in the sun. And yeah. I'm not sure I'd be an orthopedic <laughs> surgeon now if, uh, if that's yeah. where I had ended up. A lot of other distractions yeah. uh, somewhere outside the Midwest. Yeah, I lived, I lived in uh, Arizona for a while, and that's that's not beach, but it's a lot of sun, mm-hmm. and there are a lot of attractive things. <laughs> yeah, I, I was I thought I wanted to go to USC. Okay, and yeah. it's great school, great network, and had I ended up there, I'm not sure I would have been able to keep myself as focused as I did at Indiana. That's uh, very astute. <laughs> um, things things happen for a reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. So, um, following from Indiana, staying somewhat close to home, but obviously um, the fact that you're back here now, you know, lends some credibility to your experience here. You did your uh, residency here at Northwestern. Uh, going from Indiana here, how did you choose Northwestern? So the biggest thing is that I rotate, <coughs> rotated here as a medical student and absolutely loved it. So okay. it was the blend of experience that I was looking for, um, a few different things. So it was a comprehensive orthopedic program had everything from the more obscure specialties and you know a strong exposure to every single subspecialty. Okay. That was one thing. The second was that they have and we have a very strong didactic curriculum and a formal educational curriculum. So okay. that's more common now in orthopedic residencies, but as little as five, six years ago, it was more informal. Hmm. It was more of come and see a lot of orthopedic surgery and you'll learn most of the things you need to learn. Yeah. I think Northwestern has a really purposeful setup for the education to ensure you're getting exposure both from the more academic and didactic side and also from the clinical side. Got it. Uh, and then finally, the people. You know, the, yeah. I came for a rotation. You know, the residents were great. The faculty were approachable. It's in Chicago. I grew up not far outside of the city. It felt like home. And yeah. so I knew right away that this is where I wanted to be. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Now, you mentioned at the start of that the, that they had all of the, or a, I forget exactly how you said it, a broad spectrum of all the subspecialties in orthopedics. Is that unique? And candidly on my end, I, you know, it's not, not it's not it's not unique. So it's a it's pretty much mandatory for orthopedic residencies okay. to expose you to the subspecialties. Okay. How they do that is variable. Got it. So Got it. you know, for example, we have on campus here we have a pediatric hospital. 
-hmm. We don't go mm -hmm. elsewhere for our pediatrics. Yeah, it's right, a trauma right. center. It's not the world's busiest trauma center, but we have a level one trauma center yeah. here. We go across down to Cook County for a more robust trauma experience. And then orthopedic oncology and spine surgery are two other areas that not every single program has those in-house. Okay. Sometimes you have to go elsewhere for those. Got it. The other, so you'd be doing rotations in your residency program to... Like a different you know, site. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, I mean, there's some restrictions and limitations about how far someone could make you go. Sure. But it's sure. really nice to come to the same building every day. Yeah. You have your yeah. same routine, and it can keep you engaged with, a, like, we do our didactics in the morning, so there's... Didactics every single morning is from 6.15 to 7. If you're off-site, you don't get to participate in those. Got it. And it turns out at yeah. some point during residency, you're looking for an excuse not to have to do that. But, <laughs> right. But it is nice to have all of that available to you. Yeah. And then the other thing is that the residency here is a bit flipped on its head. Okay. Most residencies are very um, trauma and general orthopedic surgery heavy early and then more subspecialty heavy late. So some residents, when they're getting ready to apply for their fellowships, have a very minimal subspecialty exposure. Mm. It's just the nature yeah. of how most orthopedics is structured. Yeah. Um, you generally a, start broad and then focus in. Yeah. But the timing, I'm assuming, it, you know, related to when you need to start applying to get in a fellowship right, matters. Right. And in, in the, you tend to start as a more junior resident on the more inpatient heavy services. Okay. And you kind of graduate to some of the more outpatient elective services. As okay. you get older. That's the typical orthopedic residency. At Northwestern, there's full and comprehensive exposure to the subspecialties in the second and third year, hmm. which is a little bit different. We actually do more of our trauma later as a fourth and fifth year resident. Oh, interesting. Uh, it's just a, it's a little bit different model. It works yeah. well here. It wouldn't work well everywhere. Sure. But it sure. was nice for me. So I did sports medicine, which is what I ended up going to every single year. So I did it second year, third year, fourth year, fifth year. Got and it. so when I was applying to sports, I was very confident that I knew what I was doing, that I wanted to go into that. And yeah. for some other residents across the country, you know, they may have only had like six or eight weeks of their subspecialty yeah. when they have to apply in their fourth year. And then they'll right. get the rest of that experience during their fourth and fifth year. Yeah, that makes sense. Very cool. Um, and then transitioning from there, uh, you went to the Stedman Hawkins Clinic for your fellowship in Denver, Colorado. How was that experience out there? You know, there's uh, certainly from my perspective, uh, you know, when I've had family members or things, people like that reach out to me asking about, you know, who I should see. It maybe doesn't hold true uh, everywhere, but generally speaking, if you if you have a specific injury, you'd want to go see somebody that has that specific training. You know, doing a fellowship. That's you know, from from a layman standpoint, this is not you know clinical advice, but you know, finding somebody that has done a fellowship in the area that you know you have your specific injury seems like uh, you know the best way of going about doing things. Um, how do you see? Uh, I guess a couple of questions. Number one, how was your experience there in your fellowship, but also you know, how do you see the value of doing a fellowship now that you've started your practice? Certainly. So the, the goal of every orthopedic surgery residency should be to train a general orthopedic surgeon. Mm -hmm. So they should be comfortable with the general tenets of each subspecialty. Um, the goal of the fellowship training is to get more comfortable and more training in one specific area. So for me, sports medicine. Mm -hmm. Specifically, I wanted more training in hip arthroscopy. Got I had it. a really good exposure to hip arthroscopy during residency. Um, not as much hands-on training in hip arthroscopy, and so I wanted that. Yeah, I think with sports medicine, it's of all the orthopedic specialties, it's the broadest, and so I don't really think there's such thing as the best sports medicine fellowship. Each one offers some different things. Some people are looking for hip arthroscopy. Some people are looking for more 
shoulder arthroplasty and open shoulder surgery. Mm -hmm. Some people are looking to take care of athletes, whether mm -hmm. that be high school, college, or pro. Some are looking for just pure knee and shoulder arthroscopy training. There's a huge variety in terms of the subspe in terms of the specialty. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what I was really looking for was more hands-on hip arthroscopy training, Got and it. I wanted to work with professional athletes. And so Denver really lined up and checked those boxes. Yeah. I think yeah. I got excellent hip arthroscopy training. I think Jamie Gennario is one of the best operative teachers I've ever worked with um, across the board. And I've been fortunate to work with a lot of really good orthopedic surgeons and a lot of really good teachers. Yeah. And then the fellowship, we had a really meaningful exposure to taking care of the Denver Broncos and the Colorado Rockies. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, right. we were fully integrated with the Broncos team from day one. And then with the Rockies, you really function as an assistant team physician and so in the second half of the fellowship you're providing game day coverage solo without anybody else oh there. really wow. and that's pretty rare so yeah. that that's that experience is hard to get and you know it's really teed me up for the career that i hope to have so here at northwestern i'm an assistant team physician for the cubs and yeah. you know i have the background and the training to feel comfortable doing that and for the team to feel comfortable with me right right and so I, that's what i wanted to get out of fellowship and i felt like far and away i got exactly what i wanted i think yeah. that the biggest thing from an educational standpoint my co-fellow drew and i talked about all the time is that we were both really purposeful and spent a lot of time in reflection and thought about what we hope to get out of fellowship and then tried to pick the best fellowship for those things. Mm. And that's why we were so thrilled in Denver. Yeah. You know, yeah. we didn't do as much open shoulder and shoulder replacement surgery as some other fellowships. We certainly didn't do a whole lot of research and publishing, mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. those things weren't real high on our list in terms of what we were hoping to get out of right. that year. Right. And so the things we were really important, we were blown away with how good it was. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, you know, transitioning to where you're at now, that that fellowship didn't end long ago. You know, you started September 3rd of this year. So you've been in practice three months and a day today. Um, what has that train, maybe this is too broad of a question, but what has that transition been like moving from training to actually you are the attending surgeon, you are in your practice now and you're trying to build your practice, build your name, uh, you know, get a feel for what it's actually like now that you're, you know, you've hit the ground running. You know, what I guess talk to me about that transition. Yeah, I think it's a few things. So I think the transition has to start well before the practice starts. Okay. And so it's a it's a mindset and a framework about thinking through things. And it, as many people do, you know, when, when I was a resident, I was much less concerned with making ultimate decisions. Mm -hmm. You know, I mm -hmm. would evaluate a patient and say, here's some information. <clears throat> It could be this, it could be that, we could do this, we could do that. And then I would talk with the attending surgeon about what they thought was the next best steps. Yeah. At some point during fellowship, and you know, I, I can't think of exactly when it was, but you start to have yeah. this realization that, well, in six months or eight months or three weeks, I'm You're not going to have call. somebody. I've got to make that <laughs> yeah. call. And so yeah. you start changing your framework and your mindset, yeah. and you start thinking about every patient that way. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. If I wasn't here to bounce this off of somebody else, what would I do? Yeah. And you start trying to see and make sure that your framework lines up with your mentors because those are folks you admire and you think highly of. You want to make sure you're starting to line up. And you get some confidence towards the end of fellowship when you start having that framework and thought process. Yeah. And then it all resets. So you start day one and you see all these patients and you make decisions and you think you've made the right decisions. And then four or five hours later, you think, I hope I made the right decisions. Yeah, I made the right decision. And so yeah, there's, you know, there's yeah. a little more second guessing and things like that. Um, but I think the biggest thing is that 
your mentors help guide you through that process. Yeah, and so, right. you know, at the end of residency and then at the at transition through fellowship, I had really good folks I was working with who helped me on things that I needed to think about and that were important for that transition. Yeah. And so yeah. from a clinical standpoint, it's changing your mindset, thinking about how you're going to evaluate things, remembering that it's okay to ask questions. You know, I still see mm-hmm. folks that I mm-hmm. want to make sure on things of, and I bounce things off of my mentors here or my mentors yeah. in Denver. Yeah. I think it's, you know, remembering gonna, that it's okay to do stayed, that. Stayed in contact with them. Yeah, yeah. I do. Yeah. I do that, and I have a running text thread with my co-fellow from Denver yeah. as well as a couple of my buddies from residency that we're constantly bouncing things off of each other. Yeah. Um, you know, making sure the framework and the mindset we're taking towards a given problem is appropriate and it's nice to have that reassurance of your friends and colleagues to say yeah i think you're approaching that the right way i do the same thing or or maybe think about this or that and so i think that part's really helpful but i I think it's not being too proud to remember that you're still in the learning stages i mean sure started practice but still learning constantly and so if you got to have you know some be a little bit humble and say this is a tricky problem. I think mm-hmm. this is how we should manage it. It's okay to make that decision, but it's not wrong to bounce it off of some people who you think highly of. Yeah. It, you know, in some of the previous conversations I've had with some of your surgeon peers, I think it was brought to my attention, and I think I just didn't appreciate it prior to that. When I would, you know, from my standpoint, when I was thinking about somebody going and doing a fellowship, it's like, well, you get a lot of hands-on experience. You're going to be better at doing the procedures you know, like you're gonna be more confident in your technique and like that's a factor, but what I'm hearing you say and what I've kind of come to realize over the last handful of weeks having these types of conversations is how much of it comes down to the decision-making process on, you know, if I see this, this is the right thing to do for this patient, you know, or some version of that where, you know, yeah, it's some of it is tech, like actual physical skills and technical skills, but you know, the probably the more important thing is understanding how do you manage these patients with these specific that are presenting with these issues. No, certainly. There's definitely some components of orthopedics that are technically challenging, but Mm -hmm. it's certainly not the hardest part of orthopedics. The toughest part of orthopedics is the clinical evaluation, clinical decision-making, and figuring out who the right folks are for the right operations, and recognizing that a lot of folks are better off without surgery. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the technical side of surgery, there's certainly some parts that are challenging and some more than others. Sure. But the more difficult part is surgical indications. Yeah. And so I think that was a heavy focus of residency and fellowship. I think that my training in both places was fairly conservative, which I'm thankful for. Yeah. You talk a lot more folks out of surgery than you do into surgery, that's for certain. But I think that's the harder part of orthopedics and nobody falls into a perfect bucket. There's yeah, no right. patient that comes through the door that's read the textbook and they have the right symptoms and the right imaging and the right complaints and the right exam findings. And you know, okay, I know exactly what to do with this person. Sure. Everybody's in that gray area. Sure. And so yeah. it's helping to try to parse that stuff out and figure out what's the real problem. Is there something that we can address, whether it's non-surgically or surgically, that's going to help with this problem? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's the tricky sense. part. That makes sense. Well, you know, if you don't mind humoring me on the sales rep side of things, uh, obviously there's a lot of people that are in, interested in medicine and or the sales side of things as well that are listening. What, um, what has kind of been your experience with medical sales reps and maybe how, has, how did you view medical sales reps? And you can be totally candid there, you know. <laughs> don't hold back here. Um, 
you know, maybe as you're coming up through your residency, your fellowship to maybe now in practice, has that changed at all? You know, what are your, I guess, from a macro standpoint, what are your thoughts on medical sales reps, where they fit in, you know, the whole scheme of things? Yeah, so I think overall my experience has been really positive. Okay. You know, I, I try to look at the whole thing and this is a team sport. There's mm-hmm. a lot of folks involved from a lot of aspects. And orthopedics in particular is one specialty that you really can't do without industry. There's very little of what we do that is without implants, without right. surgical tools. And so I think there has to be a healthy relationship with the industry. And that is that relationship flows through the mostly through the surgical sales reps. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've for me through training in both residency and fellowship that we've had great interactions with our reps and they're more of a resource for the residents and fellows you know as you get further along and you start to understand product lines a little more in detail you have a better handle on the instrument the equipment the implants those things but during residency and even during fellowship there's a lot of things that you don't know you only know what you've been exposed to by your mentors And so I think it was really valuable for me all along is talking with the reps, learning about what's available, what's not available, recommended techniques and otherwise. Mm-hmm. Most most of the you know, the orthopedic companies at least also have a lot of really valuable educational resources. Yeah, yeah. And so it may not be a product that you'll necessarily use or adopt in the future, but you still start to learn a lot more about the procedures. Yeah. And I think recognizing that, you know, the – surgical sales and the medical rep is an integral part of that team, especially in the OR. You, you can't see patients in clinic and do surgeries and keep full tabs on every single implant and device that's available and yeah. when it's coming out and what's new and what's better and all those things. You have to rely on having a good team around you that's going to give you good information and help you recognize and adopt new technologies when they're available and ready and also help you with what technologies fit into your practice and what technologies don't. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And I think that, uh, you know, I would imagine potentially one of the difficult things, and certainly from our side of things, but also I would imagine from the physician side of things is that each company is going to have their take on how to build the best mousetrap, you know, how they want to build the, you know, the best technique. And it's doing something different isn't necessarily always better. Everybody has their way of, you know, trying to, trying to present, oh, this technique or this product, you should use it because of this or because of that and whatnot. It can become a jumbled mess, candidly, you know, at least from what I've seen. How do you kind of filter through um, making a decision on, you know, the products you choose, the techniques you choose, how much of that is, you know, kind of an outflow from doing your fellowship and talking to your mentors and what they've done and whatnot. How do you, how do you think about that as far as, you know, the products and the techniques and the things that you're using at least at this stage in your practice? So I think a couple ways. And part of my kind of onboarding process here at Northwestern is that they asked and requested for a list of basically every implant device product system that I was thinking about using. Oh, interesting. And that yeah. was a few months before I started here. And so I had to actually sit down and thoughtfully go through each procedure I could potentially think of doing. Yeah. Come up with a list of instruments, implants, and other devices for that procedure and ensure that what I was hoping to use was available here. And if it wasn't, how do we get it on the shelf here and how do we make sure that it's available? Uh So I think that I've, the products that I'm currently using have settled on in a few ways. One is, you know, clearly influenced by what am I, what I'm exposed to? What have my mentors used? What have I seen? What have I been around? 
that's one component of it. When available, I try to make the decisions data-driven. There's mm -hmm. some good scientific data comparing implants head-to-head, -head, and so when and where that data is available, I try to rely on that data. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's not available for most things we use, or most companies, if you compare head-to-head -head from one to the other, done in a proper scientific fashion, there's not a lot of difference. Right. Right. So in those areas, it comes down to what are you comfortable with from one, have you used it, and two, is the instrumentation reasonable and do you feel comfortable with the instrumentation and do you like the instrumentation? Mm -hmm. But where there's mm -hmm. difference, I try to adopt the products that are evidence-based and data-driven. Yeah. Yeah. And going back to the beginning of your question, I mean, for, for me, I think the best sales reps that I've worked with sell without ever feeling like it's selling. They're yeah. honest with you. They tell you when they think a product is quality, when they think that it's a, a significant change from what was previously available. They're honest yeah. with you when it, a new technology is only new for the sake of being new and it doesn't add a lot. Um, and they're honest with you where you can be cost effective in saving and maybe right. where it's worth spending a little bit more money for an advantage. And so I think the, the reps that I've worked with that are, and again, this is most of them for me, I don't know if it's universally the case, but you know they're not pushing products. They're trying to educate you and show you what's available and what's out there, and not saying you need to develop. You know we want you to adopt all of our products for everything, uh -huh. and uh -huh. it's recognizing that, at least in my opinion, there's no one company that has figured it out. Right. There right. are companies that whose <clears throat> pro products I like a lot of their products, and then for certain things like a different company's product or maybe a small company's product mm -hmm. or. You know, so and as there's a small lot of competition in the marketplace. Yeah, well, too. there's a lot of small companies that develop yeah. things and then get bought by yeah, larger companies. Absolutely. So, you know, products jump from one one yeah. company to another, and so I think it's recognizing that you don't want to, at least for my attitude as a surgeon, you don't want to be. A, I'm a this company guy. I use this. It's sure. more what are the best products? What are the what am I most comfortable with? Uh -huh. And again, going back when there is the data, rely yeah. on the data. Um, you know, and you had mentioned a little bit about the financial side of things. Obviously, that's a big factor in healthcare, um, and we don't need to go down the road of you know, the future of healthcare. That's, a, you know, that's. I'm not educated enough to talk on it, and it would be a six-hour podcast. But you know, obviously, that's changing. You know, how do you see kind of the use of products and maybe the decision making on products? You know, either staying the same or different over the next, you know, two to five years in your practice. Um, you know, is how do you feel like that combined? You know, especially with the financial component comes into play as you know, really as a, a country, we think about like what is the future of healthcare going to look like? What's your thought on that? How do you see that maybe changing or not changing over the next handful of years? Yeah, I think for all of us involved in healthcare at any level and any capacity, we all have some responsibility to try to be cost effective mm -hmm. and at least thoughtful about cost when and where we can. Yeah. And so I think we're all ultimately patient driven and outcome driven. And so even if it's more expensive or even if we're going to lose money on it, if we think it's the right thing to do for the patient, we're going to do the right thing. Yeah. Uh, and that may mean money coming out of our pocket or otherwise. But I think. Like the example I brought up earlier, you know, when you have several products compared head to head, reasonably scientifically, and they're very similar or the same in yeah. terms of their outcome and ability, then you have some responsibility to at least consider the more cost effective um, mm -hmm. options. Yeah. Now, for me, working in large multi specialty group in a large institution, I don't have the direct pressure necessarily to make those decisions on a day to day basis because mm -hmm. we make decisions more as a system. Um, but you see it a lot in 
you know, I think the perfect example of how to run an efficient surgical practice is smaller subspecialty-based practices that work in private surgery centers. You have to have a real conversation about, you know, if I use this implant, we may break even on this procedure and mm-hmm. not make mm-hmm. anything. And you have to decide, is it, does it make a difference in terms of the patient yeah. outcome and is it worthwhile right. to adopt that? And if it does, you do it. You do the right thing for the patient at the end of the day. Yeah. But I think we all have some responsibility to at least consider cost and not just use the more expensive implant because we like it or we like the packaging or sure. we like the presentation. Sure. Yeah, understood. Um, there was a question that I just remembered that I wanted to ask, and I think it's probably because I just... I've heard about it, but I don't really know any of the details, so feel free to answer or ignore it if, you know, whatever. Um, When you start your practice, your first year, you then have to go at the end of your first year and present all the cases that you did. Is that correct? Almost. Okay. So Share share with me that process because I think that's something maybe a lot of people don't recognize, at least, you know, understand initially. Yeah, so the board certification process for orthopedic surgery is a little bit different than some subspecialties. So you take a written board examination. Most people take it at the end of residency. Okay. Um, You have to pass the written examination, and then that's followed up by an oral examination. The oral examination, you have to be in practice in the same setting for 11 months, and then you collect six months' worth of cases that are submitted to the board. Got it. So during that time, any surgical case, and, I, and actually I think it's any patient interaction is documented and logged in your, in your log. A new thing that's been adopted in the last few years is that the board will, excuse me, the board will send patient outcome surveys and questionnaires to the patients to monitor their outcomes. Oh, interesting, yeah. But you submit their records, or at least you submit a log of all of your cases. Yeah. The board will then select, I believe it's 10 cases out of that log that you have to complete you have to submit the complete medical record for. Okay. Then when you go to your oral board exam which happens here in Chicago every summer, they will select 3 of those 10 cases to discuss with you. And so yeah. they'll discuss everything from indications, non-operative management decisions, surgical techniques, surgical outcomes, and the goal and what the board is looking for at least from my understanding is, you know, are you, do you have proper surgical indications? Do you have an evidence-based practice? Do you defend your decision-making based on orthopedic literature or at least sound logical reasoning? Sure, sure. And from my understanding, we have a few board examiners here at Northwestern. You know, they can't get into the details of what's asked and not asked, but what they've told us is that people who fail their boards most often fail for indications. It's not their technical ability mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that does people in. It's indications for doing the right surgery for the right person. Yeah, yeah. And that's why there's, again, that's the hard part of orthopedics, and that's where the emphasis on decision-making is driven is getting the right folk, folks to the right place <clears throat> in terms of treatment. Yeah, yeah. Got it. The, uh, and what comes to mind, at least on my side of things, uh, looking at it from the industry side is, you know, if I'm going to be, or if you're listening and you're going to be approaching a surgeon that's, you know, early in their practice, at some level, you do have to have the awareness that you're starting a new practice for the first time. You're going to have to be answering for all these, you know, some amount of cases, potentially 10 of them, but obviously that's being selected out of a, a broader uh, sample. Um, trying to bring new technology, new techniques, new products there probably needs to be a certain level of uh, humility with the fact that, like, I don't know how crazy you want to be in trying a new product. 
you know, especially in your first year of practice, you're gonna, you're gonna have to answer for why you're doing what you're doing. And, and you know, obviously you're talking about indications more so than technique, but I would imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, I'm inferring that there's probably, you're much less likely to go try a new product maybe in your first year because you're still trying to figure out how to be an orthopedic practicing surgeon along with answering for all these things. And then, oh, doc, check out my new product. That's the sweetest thing ever. Right, it's like, right. whoa, you know? Yeah, no, there's definitely a balance. You know, I think my attitude is this. So, like I said, I went through this process of looking through and trying to decide what I want to use for every case. And, yeah. you know, it was actually a really good educational exercise for me because it forced me to sit down and think of what is the scope of my practice and what would I like to use for those based on experience, evidence, data, whatever it yeah. may be. What my attitude has been is that I'm excited and I want to learn about new technology. I want to learn about different techniques and implants and instruments and all of those things. I've told all of the surgical sales reps that I've interacted with, I will be more slow to adopt new things in these first few years because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I need some time to settle in and make sure I'm comfortable with what I'm doing. Yeah. You know, I'm fairly comfortable with the systems I'm using now. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be even more comfortable in a few years. I'll be hesitant to adopt new things mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. some with some reasonable sure. exceptions. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, for the first few years, because I want to make sure I'm really comfortable with what I'm doing before I start introducing more variables. Yeah, I think yeah. the beginning of practice is trying to limit as many of those variables as Absolutely. possible. Because yeah. there's the, wherever there's opportunities for things to go wrong or differently than you expect, they'll happen. Yeah. What is that law? Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Yes. Uh, Mur- is it Murphy's law? I think so. I think it's Murphy's so. law. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, that's in, and I, you know, and again, I, I, I've been fortunate. My interactions have been great. I mean, I, yeah. there have, I haven't had any sales reps that are pushy or saying, oh, you got to do this, you got to do this. It's, you know, here's our technology. Here's what we have. You know, here's an opportunity to use it. Mm-hmm. You let us know when, if and when you're interested. Yeah. And I think that's perfectly appropriate because I do, I want to learn. I mean, I want to see what's out there and, I don't want to be blind to new different things just because my mentors didn't use them. Sure. But sure. I'd just be a little more, a little slower on a slower side to adopt new things in these first three to five years. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and then going back to your question mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. boards, I'll do my best, and I think it's prudent, but to try to maintain that same mentality throughout my practice. Sure. I think it's a good law and a good rule to live by in terms of orthopedic practice and you'll hear people say that all the time you know what would you do on your boards what would you do if you're in your board collection Mm -hmm. and what that Mm -hmm. drives you back to is what's the right thing to do yeah right and it's constantly be having that mindset of you get excited and you think you can help folks and you think you can do the right things but constantly taking a step back and saying you know is this the right thing to do for this person are we better off going a little bit slower or being a little more conservative giving them some time with the non-surgical treatment or should we be more? And I think that's one of my favorite things I've learned from Dr. Peabody is the idea of conservative treatment. Uh-huh. Conservative treatment doesn't mean non-surgical or surgical. Right, right. Sometimes sure. a conservative treatment is surgical. You know, for example, you see a compartment syndrome. <laughs> yeah. The conservative <laughs> thing to do is to operate on yeah. it. Absolutely. The, you know, the yeah. aggressive thing to do is ignore it. Uh-huh. And so, you know, I think that it's being conservative and you know, sometimes that means more non-surgical treatment, and sometimes that means earlier operative intervention. Yeah, yeah, no, that's interesting because it's easy to conflate uh, conservative treatment with non-surgical yeah, treatment. Exactly. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. Um, well, we're getting close to the end. Uh, you know, I think there are there are a number of people who have listened to the podcast that have reached out to me, and, and they may not necessarily be just on the sales rep side of things. They maybe you know, uh, 16, 18, 21, early 20s, 
and they may want to go into medicine. You know, what are your, do you have any advice having, especially having recently gone through that process to become an orthopedic surgeon? I guess, do you have any advice for somebody that's maybe in that age range that's thinking about it? Maybe some things that are um, maybe different than you expected or, you know, is it, you know, things that are as expected and are as good? Do you have any advice for people in that age range that are thinking about doing medicine, orthopedic surgery, something like that? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is get out and get exposed to it. I think that you'll yeah. find that most people in medicine, I mean, I'm sure there's exceptions, but they're excited about new people, about young folks who are interested. Mm-hmm. Most people, even if you cold call them or if you find a friend of a friend yeah. who is in medicine, if you ask them, you know, if you can come spend some time with them, learn about what a medical practice is like, they're receptive yeah. to it. And if you're interested in orthopedics and you don't know an orth- orthopedic surgeon, but you know a pulmonologist, well, I can promise you that the pulmonologist has friends who are orthopedic surgeons. So get out and get exposed to medicine at first in general and then talk about some of the other specialties that you'd like to. And usually folks have friends or colleagues or someone that they know they can get you connected with. And then I think the second thing is that you know medicine is different. Medicine's not what it was 30 years ago. Uh-huh. Things are changing. They're constantly changing, rapidly changing. Um, but it's a great job. And it's, yeah. it's a lot of fun. And it's, you know, it's something I'm obviously passionate about. But again, I like it for a variety of reasons, you know, but I think it's still a great career path. Yeah. But you want to get exposed to it. You want to get out and learn. You know, it's easy to say, well, I want to be a doctor, but you want to get what you beyond that and figure out what does it really mean to be a doctor? What is the uh-huh, lifestyle uh-huh. like? It's not nearly as glamorous as it seems like it <laughs> could be or should be. Sure, sure. Um, and it's a lot of hard work and long hours, not just in training. I mean, that doesn't really go away in practice. It's yeah, the same. Right. But at the same time, you know, there is, I'm sure there's been days, but not days that I can remember that I wake up and don't want to come to work. Uh-huh. And I'm sure there was times when I was a resident that I was tired and didn't feel sure. like coming in. I'm sure, if, but I just don't, you know, there's so many more good days that I don't remember. Yeah. yeah. And so it's a great, it's a great path. One of the, I was going to ask this earlier and I, I don't know, got sidetracked or we went off a, you know, different path. Um, what, what were your thoughts coming out of your fellowship wanting to go to, uh, a teaching institution versus private practice somewhere. Uh, obviously, being at Northwestern, you know, what is it that drew you to a place like this? Maybe how much interaction are you having with your med, stu- med students or residents? Um, and the thought process behind doing that, or you know, going to private practice where you don't have the educational side of things. Yeah, so education is something that was really high on my list of things that are important to me. Um, You don't necessarily have to be in a traditional academic setting Uh to have that interaction, but it's certainly more readily available in the traditional academic setting. Um, And to me, medicine and orthopedics as a whole, there is the clinical aspects, there's the surgical aspect, and then there's the everything else about orthopedics. And that's actually, I think, a much bigger chunk than most people appreciate. So for me, those things are leadership and involvement with our national societies. It's um, team coverage and taking care mm-hmm. of athletes here in town. And then the last thing is teaching. And so I had a, I had a mm-hmm. pretty strong background in teaching and education, curricular design and curricular development when I was a medical student. Okay. And I really enjoyed that. And I wanted that to be a part of my career. Again, I could have got, I probably could have achieved that in a private practice setting, but I would have had to work a lot harder to develop it. Yeah. Coming here, the opportunity that I had was basically walking into that practice that I would hope to develop somewhere else. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so I and I interviewed at a few different private practices that I thought were really good practices with really good surgeons. Yeah. And I think, you know, could have eventually developed a similar practice to what I'm going to have here and a similar career path? Yeah, Probably. Yeah, yeah. 
And I think a lot of folks have done that. Um, but it was just so hard to pass up one. I, I knew this yeah. place inside and out. You know, yeah. I, I know the skeletons. I know where all the bodies are hidden. Here. I mean, <laughs> five years of sure. residency, you hear all of the complaints. Sure. And so I basically came in with the framework and the mindset of, I know the worst things, and they're not so bad. And they yeah. don't really bother me, and they're not things that are going to inhibit my career in any way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, to where there's a little bit of unknown in other places. Sure. And so, sure. you know, you try to figure out as best you can, but there's certainly more unknown. Especially so when this they was want a, you to come. They're going to present it in the best yeah. light. And fortunately, I had I, the other places I looked, I there was people that I knew pretty well yeah. who were pretty honest with me. Yeah. And so, you know, I wouldn't say that's the reason that I decided to end up here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I just, at the end of the day, I thought about it and I said, you know, I'm hoping to develop this career that involves clinical medicine, surgical orthopedics, and leadership and education, uh-huh. and a little bit of the research components of a separate and side thing. But if I could walk into that day one, it's crazy to pass that up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I ended up here. And then well, kind of a cherry on top here was that the department would like me to have a little bit more involvement with the clinical research. Okay. And I mean, if you can look at my background and my CV, I'm not by any means a powerhouse researcher but I tend to do pretty well with systems development, implementation, leadership in the administrative side. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. so it was kind of exciting to have a project to take on day one. And that's what yeah. I, I spent my morning today working with folks on how do we improve our clinical outcomes infrastructure. And yeah. you know, I, I like having projects like that to work on. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, it makes it busy. I mean, it's busier yeah, than I could sure. have ever imagined. <laughs> I mean, I, it's busy enough with the clinical side, and then I finally get caught up on that stuff, and then it's like I have a million projects already that I need to get done from the other stuff. But yeah, you know what? It yeah. makes it fun. Yeah. I'd, I'd rather be busy than bored. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with that. Um, Anything else you want to touch on? I don't know. I don't think so. Yeah. Well, I think that's um, most of it. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the uh, take of the time because you are busy. You have a lot of things going on uh, that kind of we're pumped up against a, a stop here on both sides. Um, but thanks for coming on the podcast. What I'll do in the show notes is uh, leave information about you, how to get in touch with you if somebody's in the area and needs to be seen by an orthopedic surgeon or whatever. Um, you know, do you have uh, somebody like that, like a, uh, an assistant that works with you, or what would be the best yeah. way for people to reach out? I'll give you contact information. Okay, yeah, All right. just reach out to us. We have our, it, our, we we work very hard and. I've actually, we've had to work harder than I expected to make sure our clinical availability is where we want it. But okay. we can generally see people within two, three weeks at most. Yeah. Um, and I expected it to stay that way for at least six months or a year. And within two months, we're having to work pretty hard to make sure that happens. <laughs> um, yeah. But we do. We work hard to make sure it happens. And so we'll leave the contact Good. information. And yeah. then you can always let the folks know on the phone you know, if you need or want to be seen sooner yeah. to request it. And then they get through to our team and we do everything we can to make that happen. All right, perfect. Yeah, I'll leave that in the show notes. That's awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Medical Sales Certification Podcast. And as you know, we give all of our content and training away for free. So it would really mean a lot to me if you could subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review. And if you thought that this episode in particular was helpful, consider sending it to somebody you know who you think could benefit as well. Thanks again, and we will see you on the next episode. Bye.